listening to the Stephen McGarvey Podcast. Here, one of the things that we talk to people about is that what enables us to differentiate ourselves is the ability to give others the experience of being understood. Your brain is an association machine. It connects things together. Mind is a terrible thing to waste. And welcome back to another Steve McGarvey podcast. We have back with us Richard Stone. Now, Richard, I can't thank you enough for uh, being so generous with your time. Where we left off was you sharing your childhood, which is fascinating, and you having access, uh, uh, everything that went on, those who haven't heard it, go back and listen to the previous podcast, access to, for the first time in your life, art uh, on walls and art in books. Where did that lead you? That opened windows, opened doors, opened a pathway to you becoming who you are today. So take us from there. Well, we had a new neighbor. He was a gentleman from um, uh, somewhere north in England, a town called Leicester. And he'd retired, but happened to have a, an ability to paint extremely well. And he'd seen me in the garden, pottering around with a sketchbook, um, drawing, painting flowers, little landscape, the whole works. And every so often would pop his head over the fence and look at what I was doing. He asked my mother if he could give me a few art lessons and take me out on sketching trips. Uh, so here I am as this young kid, full of enthusiasm, uh, loving drawing and painting and I've really got a sketching buddy now a much older man who knew so much more than I did and in in many ways they were real art lessons but actually art lessons out in the field so we were able to look at gnarled oaks and a river with bulrushes and things like this um, look at clouds and shadows and just observe stuff and we'd spent most weekends uh, together with, uh, you know, sandwiches in a canvas bag and paints and brushes and a sketchbook. And as the years went by, he thought he'd like to treat me to another visit to London. And he took me to what really was the, the center of the best of art of its time. So what are we in the mid-60s here? And he took me to the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition which was a collection of really the finest artists in the UK. And without meeting him, Richard, you would unlikely be able to have access to this kind of travel, this kind of venue, access to this, these kinds of days that you're experiencing. Um, up to that point, this was definitely a, an introduction to another world. Um, separate story, um, around this time I'd fallen in love with opera but on the radio and so I was uh, hatching a plan to see if I could knock on the door of the Royal Opera House to see if I could be letting with my sketchbook but that's a separate story let's go back to Fred Heron this marvelous neighbor full of enthusiasm and a tremendous supporter and encourager, if there's such a word, of my work. My 14th birthday comes about. Take the train to London and we go to Piccadilly where the Royal Academy is. Um, a great fine art institution um, uh, founded in the reign of George III. I mean, it 
gone back a long time. The most famous British artists have been associated with it. And I was then being introduced for the first time um, to the work of living artists. And as often as not, their very best work, certainly for that year. So I'm going to gallery number one. And there's one picture that catches my eye. I'm mesmerized by it. Um, it's very difficult on just a, with a microphone in hand to really describe how powerful this picture was. But it was a portrait of the British composer Ray Fawn Williams. And what about it caught your eye? Difficult question to answer other than we all know that um, a good portrait can be a speaking likeness. This was a speaking likeness. It was a portrait of the great composer about to get up from a chair. So you were aware of the movement, you were aware of his gaze, you were certainly aware that he appeared on the verge of saying something to you, the speaking likeness. But the movement in it, the gesture that was captured, was one that was so realistic. We're not talking about photorealism here. I mean, that term hadn't even been invented then. But it was a portrait that had such presence, I felt the person depicted on that canvas was about to stand up to shake my hand. It was hugely powerful. So when you say the movement in it, and now you're describing this stand up to shake my hand, what is it as a professional artist, what is it about movement? How is movement portrayed in a still picture or painting? How, how would you describe that? Well, I suppose this is what in many ways made this particular picture so special. When many artists have tried to capture the feeling of movement in a, in a picture or in a sculpture, often as not it becomes a sort of frozen uh, motion and what the artist Sir Gerald Kelly I found out who painted this portrait was able to capture if you want a taut gesture that indicated the subject was about to move it was very cleverly done um, it's quite difficult to analyze because in my own work some pictures are more successful than others. As hard as you try um, you sometimes can't quite capture what you set out to do. But it was the feeling of not just the tension and the movement in it but if you want it was the warmth and the presence of that personality was such that you actually felt that he was in the room. And if you want, we talked about the previous talk, the Rembrandts and things like this, where Rembrandt was the absolute genius. You've only got to look at one of his portraits and you feel as though you are in the presence of that person. It transcends time. Um, and here I was in the uh, presence of um, a man in a portrait that felt as though he was coming 
out to the frame to greet me. It was so powerful I took a note of the name Sir Gerald Kelly, did a little bit of research, had seen that he had been president of the Royal Academy, so clearly he was well recognised, and I wrote him a fan letter. I told him that I thought he was the greatest portrait painter since Rembrandt. <laughs> That's quite a compliment. Well, well, it is, but not wanting to lose an opportunity with this man, I shared with him that it was my ambition to be a portrait painter, and he, I felt, was the perfect person to give me some tips. And how did he respond to this? Almost immediately with a very nice letter, thanking me for the very flattering comments, and came back with a suggestion that could I carry as much work as I could possibly take to his studio in central London, because he wanted to do his best to dissuade me from, from his term embarking on such a dangerous path. Interesting. So someone who, in your eyes, is really successful, initially discouraging you from going down this path, going in this direction. Yes. So you've got me all ears. Keep going with the story. To backtrack a little, um, during my early teenage years, um, because people thought I could draw quite well, um, Tuesdays was a special day, or I was given permission from the school to go and attend life classes at the local art school. Uh, needless to say, I was the, by far the youngest in the class, and so I would spend all day just drawing, you know, naked models and, and, and the like. It, very challenging. Um, it's always been considered the, the naked human form is the most difficult subject that an artist can try and replicate. And so I thought, well, this is easy. I will put my best work in a portfolio for Sir Gerald to see. Um, I'd been painting portraits of uh, uh, teachers, my classmates. Um, I'd even received the old commission from a classmate's parent. And I, I thought I'd got a good representation of my work. I was still winning art competitions. So I took this great bundle of paintings and drawings to Sir Gerald. Um, I was 14. Uh, he was in his mid-80s. So I was welcomed at the door of his home by his secretary, who asked me to place all the pictures I had in an arc on the floor of his drawing room in order that he could walk in and get an overview of my work. And did you place them strategically in any order, or were you randomly putting them on the floor? It was all random, and remember, I was hugely nervous, because I knew this man could really paint. And uh, he came into the room and looked at me, um, a little short, dare I say it, slightly wizened Irishman, um, pebble glasses, so he was looking carefully at each picture. Um, he looked at me carefully as well and took some time 
over assessing my work and then stood close to me with I think one of the drawings in his hand and he said uh, thank you for bringing so much work for me to see um, I would like to say there's lots of enthusiasm but not much talent <laughs> not quite what you were expecting to hear I'm sure not at all I was hugely embarrassed I must have been bright red I, the, the, it would be just the sort of reaction I would have had and I apologized profusely for wasting his time uh, to be honest I was devastated by this devastated um, I being if you want my confidence had been buoyed by the art school that would always hang up my work as you know a very good example of how you know to draw a model and all this kind of stuff um, the art school uh, sorry the art room at my uh, school um, would display my works it was you know the focal point of a Parents' Day exhibition and things like this. So I was shocked, absolutely shocked. I started stuffing the pictures back into the portfolio and again apologizing. And he looked at me and he says, you look pretty young. How old are you? And I said, I'm 14, sir. He said, do you know, when I was your age, I was as keen as mustard to be a painter. I said, I am. And he said, don't leave right now come through to the studio and we'll have a little chat and as we walked through the back of the house to his fabulous studio um, he said you know when I was your age I was lucky enough to come from a background where there was a bit of money and I was sent to Paris which then was the, the center of the art world and he said, oh, he, he said it was a wonderful time. But even with a little bit of family money, there wasn't quite enough to pay the rent. So in order to earn a bit more, I would tap on various artists' studio doors and see whether you know, there was a job available. And he said, oh, you know, while I'm, while I'm talking, I'm going to sit here in the middle of the room. And he says, as you're much younger than me, I'm going to send you off on little errands so he sent me to the back of the studio and there appeared to be a cabinet with lots of little drawers in it and he said oh it's probably the fifth drawer down something like that he said there's something in it I want you to pick it up very carefully and bring it to me so I looked in the drawer and there was a little something and I put it in my hand and then walked back to where he was sitting and he said tell me what you're holding and I said the obvious of course it's a piece of clay he said look again and I said goodness it's a hand and he said tell me more and I'm looking at it and I said well it looks like a man's hand and a hand that has seen a lot of hard work and maybe a hand of a laborer um, it's a, a mature hand, it's not an old man's hand. He said, this is really interesting. So he said, look at it from various angles. So I'm looking at it from various angles and holding it up to the light. 
And he said, this little bit of dry clay that has been shaped into a human hand, he said, you have told me so much about it. He said, this is your first lesson, he said, because he said, in your drawings, you're giving me too much information. He said, I can tell you now, he said, everything is beautifully drawn, but there's too much. And he said, this little piece you're holding, he said, you have described the personality behind the hand, a man you cannot see. And he said, by the way, any idea who did it, thank you for all those years of looking in art books. I said, it's the work of Rodin, this great French sculptor Rodin. And he said, yes, he gave me a job and I'd have to be in his studio the first to unlock the doors at 5.30 in the morning. And here I am, open-mouthed, of course. And he said, my job was to take the wet sacking off these mountains of clay and break pieces off and turn them really into cricket ball-sized lumps. Because when Rodin was working, he worked in little pellets. And he said, that was my job. And he said, if I'd done a particularly good day's work, he'd give me a little something as a tip. And he said, you're holding one of those tips right now. Wow. And he said, I like your company. Now I'm feeling an awful lot better. <laughs> From being told you have no talent. Yes. To <laughs> having a conversation and building some yes. rapport. And it was a real conversation as well. Yeah. And realizing that I'm standing next to the man that worked for Rodin and knew him and in my hand I'm holding a piece that Rodin himself had modeled. Astonishing. So Sir Gerald said, would you like to come again? And I said, of course, sir. And we made an appointment and I, I got to know him probably with a visit once a month, once every six weeks for the remaining four years of his life. And in that time, um, he would talk about uh, his youth in Paris and what he learned and what he did, and um, jaw-dropping tales of uh, working for um, Monet out at Giverny, um, assisting in that um, iconic Lily Pond series, because Gerald Kelly's job was to maneuver a specially designed wheelbarrow around the garden uh, on which there were timed canvases, all these slats, and in between each slat was a timed canvas. The time was actually written on it, and Gerald Kelly's job would be to be a canvas or two ahead of where Monet was working, because light, as you will appreciate, is very fleeting. Yeah. It could only be seconds. And you talk about light being so important to capturing things in your paintings. Yes. And uh, positioning the subject in the sitting in the right location in order to capture the, the feelings and, and the, the, uh, just the right ambiance for you to capture what you want on canvas. Um, yes, I'm aware of that now. But when I was 14 going on 15, I couldn't quite understand where Gerald Kelly was coming from with telling me so much about what he did helping Monet on the Lily Pond series. 
And so uh, one morning he sent me off to another part of the studio to go and get a, a little Kent's panel. And he sat in the middle of the room and I looked at it and he said, tell me about it. And I sort of protested really. I said, look, I don't want to be a landscape painter. He said, we're not here to look at the landscape. We're here to look at the light. And so, yet again, I'm learning, if you want, on the highest possible level, what great artists set out to do and achieve. So, you know, here I am in my little sweaty hands, you know, holding a Monet. And to get that kind of insight um, into an artist's working methods, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human sponge. I'm soaking all this up. Well, and you've got, uh, I remember hearing an interview with Warren Buffett, and he said time is one of the most valuable things that he has, and that with all of his wealth and all of his money, he can't buy more of it. And so you were gifted with this gentleman's time in the final few years of his life and learned lessons that uh, may take people years and years and years to learn uh, because he broke them down into what may even seem trivial or, uh, trivial or irrelevant at first, like a study of light. Um, and the impact of light on things. So that, that's just such an amazing gift uh, to have that. And, and I'll bet when he said you don't have talent, that the last thing you thought was you were going to be having these ongoing interactions with him. Um, yes, I thought when he said, thank you for coming, um, that that was it. Um, but because I think I was so hungry to learn, yeah. I mean, I'd even offered to wash his brushes and things like that, you know, <laughs> anything to be in his presence to learn. But he was absolutely clear almost from the beginning, if not the beginning, in the very early stages of me getting to know him, when I would look at his pictures, desperate to learn how he had achieved a certain result. And he said, you must not study my work too closely. You must not copy my work because you'll only become a second-rate me you need to become the first-rate you. Yeah, yeah, that that's fascinating. And we, in coaching teenagers over the years, etc., we always encourage them to be themselves and yeah. be the best version of themselves yeah. that they can be at whatever they choose to do. Well, Gerald Kelly never saw himself as a teacher, but I think because I'd listened so carefully of what he was saying, um, he was telling me things that I might not have appreciated at the time. But, you know, from, you know, my perspective now, and I'm 68, looking back, they're lessons and I, I, that are still useful to my work right now. Yeah. And, and that lesson comes through in listening to you and being uh, one of your audience, uh, people in your audience, your true nature, your personality, your ability to tell stories and to communicate your conversations with people. I mean, you have packed audiences at every one of these talks on, on board this world cruise. And my understanding is you're invited back next year already. You're in such demand. So uh, you're just wonderful to listen to and, and fantastic how you communicate with an audience and engage them in your stories. So continue. I'm all ears as to where this is leading. Well, it was wonderful talking to Gerald, seeing these marvelous pictures. And he would show me works by artists he admired and new names to me. They were not the famous names. And along the way, he would 
encouraged me to produce pictures um, for him. And I would get madly excited about the prospect of painting something for Sir Gerald, um, but was surprised by the subject matter. He said, will you paint some peaches for me? So I think for a bit, and okay. And I went off and I painted a few peaches on a, a polished table so you get a little bit of reflection to make a good picture out of it. And I was quite proud of what I did and I took the picture back to him and he was very dismissive of it. She said, I wouldn't want to eat those. <laughs> and, you know, I apologized and said, can you help me here? What am I missing? It doesn't feel like a peach. Why don't you paint some more? I painted dozens of peaches. And one day in exasperation, I said, Sir Gerald, tell me, what am I missing? I don't understand why you're asking me to paint peaches. And he said, look, the bloom on a peach reflects the light in the same way that when light falls on the human face with all the fine hair, get the bloom right, get that peachy softness. And he said, you will then be moving in the right direction to be a better portrait painter. Dozens of peaches later, I never ever got a compliment. Um, I found a lot of these panels the other day in the studio. I'd long forgotten about them. And looking back, I can see exactly where he was coming from. But of course, with these lessons and the impact he was having on me as a very enthusiastic but very young painter, needed many years for me to develop a technique and an understanding of what he was really telling me. And um, I, I still think back to many of the conversations I had with him and thought, now I understand what he was really trying to tell me. My grandfather had a saying, and he used to say, hindsight's always twenty twenty. And he had a, a saying, he said, if I could only take my head and put it on your shoulders, the world would be a very different place. Yes. And I think that's that experience and wisdom that you're talking about that only comes with age. Some of those Absolutely. lessons we, yeah. we reflect back on and realize how valuable they were, yeah. uh, even though at the time they may have, may have made very little sense. Yes. Well, I'd like to think that I was intelligent enough to um, absorb exactly what he was saying, but it's having the technical wherewithal to carry it out, and if you want the patience to be able to carry it out, um, an awareness of what you're doing, the self-criticism criticism is terribly important to be able to stand back from what you're doing and to really look at it um, analytically with a, a, a critical eye. Um, I think, to this day, I'm probably my harshest critic, but that's what drives me forward. So when people say, thinking about retirement, no, I'm thinking about retirement. But back to Sir Gerald. Um, we got to know each other very well, um, and those four years skipped by. 
but in the course of my time with him he would show me his own pictures and he would talk about the um, momentous moments in his career and the commission he was most proud of was um, to be asked to paint the state portraits of um, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth. These are the parents of the present Queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And so he would show me the studies and all of that and um, he would tell me about how he achieved these beautiful canvases. It took seven years. I mean he devoted an enormous amount of time to this and really was a labor of love. And it still is uh, a time that I think back and think this was a very important formative time in my career. I keep saying that I only knew Sir Gerald for four years and so his death still came as a shock. And I tried to get into art school. My parents wanted me to go to art school. They were determined I needed a piece of paper to show how good I was. But that was them thinking from their background that, you know, I, I had to, the pictures didn't speak for themselves. I need the paper to say, you know, it's good. So Gerald did speak to them and persuaded them to let me go it alone, um, that I would be at no real cost to them. All he wanted from my mother was that there would be a bed for me whenever I needed it and food on the table whenever I was hungry. And extraordinarily, my mother said, that's fine, Sir Gerald. And not being able to get into art school. Oh my God, I tried the, the, the greatest to the less well-known art schools and none of them accepted me, which was a bit of a blow. Um, it stunned my parents. I mean, today they give me honorary doctorates, but I mean, that's neither him. <laughs> I think it's ironic. Here nor there. The art schools that wouldn't let you in are now giving you honorary doctorates, and you're a, a world renowned portrait painter. I, I think that's just uh, irony at its finest. But it, it, it's that fickle finger of fate. I wasn't meant to go to art school, but what it did was reinforce my determination to pursue the career that I was so passionate about. When Sir Gerald dies, um, it, it was a huge loss to me because he, he was a wonderful man and I, I believe that he, he felt that I was going somewhere. But of course, no art school was accepting me. I was out on my own, but my mother said there's always a bed and there's food on the table. And so it, in fact, encouraged me to think back to Gerald Kelly's favorite subject, the person he most enjoyed being with and painting, and it was the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth, as he would have known her. And so I thought, what have I got to lose? I'm going to telephone the Queen Mother and ask if she'll sit for her portrait. You, uh, an ordinary citizen, decide to pick up the phone and call the Queen Mother and ask her to sit and give you her time so that you can paint her portrait. Correct. And you did make this call. Yes. So let's leave the audience hanging right here 
and we will pick up with this conversation. I'm assuming it happened, but at least this phone call to the Queen Mother. And I want to I want to find out in our next chat uh, what did it feel like? How did you get the courage up to do that? And did it take you a long time to get through? Did you get her right away? Did she answer the phone directly? I can't wait to hear it on our next chat that we have together. Stay tuned, and thank you again so much, Richard. We'll chat again soon.